Up next, on Book TV's Afterwards, labor reporter Stephen Greenhouse examines the challenges American workers face today. He's interviewed by Democratic Congressman Andy Levin of Michigan. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts, interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. All Afterwards programs are also available as podcasts. Steve Greenhouse, thanks so much for coming in to talk about your new book, Beaten Down, Worked Up. It was a real pleasure to read it, and I just look forward to having some time to talk to you about it. Thanks for the kind words, Congressman. Uh, great to speak with you. So, you know, when I think about this book, I, I see it as really having three major parts. After you sort of introduce the situation now, you do a really good job, I think, of talking about through stories about how workers struggled. Really, they themselves built the middle class in this country to a, certain, to a great extent by organizing, by striking, by bargaining, uh, through a lot of adversity and by demanding policy changes. And then uh, you go through a lot of the hard times of what I call the Reagan era, which I think we're still in where uh, companies, and, and starting with the President of the United States, really attacked workers a lot and their, and their unions. And then you tell a lot of hopeful stories about different creative and innovative ways that workers have been organizing in unions and other forms, uh, and, and, and make some policy recommendations. And one of the things I have to say is a lot of books like this are criticized because they come up short on the policy recommendations, but I hope we really get into that because you really made quite a few, I thought, interesting suggestions on what might be done to restore vo the voice and power of workers in this country. But so why don't you, you start by laying out where you see things right now. What is the, sta the status of working people in this country and their ability to shape their own lives uh, at, at work? Sure. So I covered labor and workplace matters for the New York Times for 19 years, and one of my concerns in interviewing people all over the nation is that so many people had no idea, you know, what unions are, what unions do, and how unions, you know, help bring us the 40-hour work week and bring us pensions, and you know, there's the bumper sticker unions, the f the folks who brought us the weekend, and I I wanted to exp you know explain to people, you know, unions have achieved a whole lot in American history, but now they're really in decline, they've really been taking on the chin, and as a result, things are f are considerably worse for workers, I believe, than was the case 30, 40 years ago. And 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 uh, I think you know far too few Americans realize that compared that that American workers have it bad in many ways compared with workers in other industrial nations on very very basic things. You know, we're the only industrial nation that doesn't have a law guaranteeing all workers paid parental leave, paid maternity leave. We're the only industrial nation that doesn't guarantee all workers paid vacation in the 28 nations of the European Union. Workers, all workers are guaranteed at least four weeks paid vacation in France, six weeks. And you know, for decades now, American workers have been suffering terrible wage stagnation while corporate profits have reached record levels and Wall Street is again at record levels. So I think a lot of workers get in their gut that something is broken. And, and they're very frustrated. And in my book, I really try to explain why things have headed south for workers in many ways. And, and I say that worker power in the United States is arguably the weakest it's been in decades. 
the percentage of workers in, you know, just one in 10 workers are in unions now. That's down from more than one, one in three when unions are at their peak. And unions, and they, you know, certainly unions have some faults, but despite those faults, you know, unions have played a key role in building the middle class and helping give workers a voice, whether on job safety or pensions or on stopping bullying by, by bosses. And unions have played a key role in, in Washington on enacting Medicare and making Social Security more generous. But in, you know, in recent years, though, unions have really been on the defensive and, and corporate power has really trumped union power in many ways. So I think we as a nation have to figure out a way to give workers more power uh, to help create a fair nation, to help end wage stagnation. For example, uh, you know, we haven't raised the federal minimum wage in over a decade. That's the longest time in American history that the minimum wage has not been increased. And I submit, I argue that that's because you know workers have so worker power is so weak in Congress, they're unable to persuade you know lots of members of Congress to raise the minimum wage, and it's very very hard for millions of Americans to live on 7.25 an hour, the federal minimum wage. So, you know, I think one of the keys of the book is to educate readers about the problems workers have and look at strategies to try to increase power for workers to help create a more prosperous nation for millions of Americans and millions of workers. Right. So what I think uh, to a certain extent, a lot of people don't even realize how few rights they have for example, one of your suggestions is that we might uh, go away from um, our our current system in almost all states, I think, except Montana, uh, which uh, in which workers can be fired for, uh, as Learned Hand said, the judge many, many decades ago, a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. Basically, you have no right to your job in this country. And you suggest going uh, towards a just cause system where workers could be fired if they did something wrong or not just because the boss doesn't like who you're going out with. But literally, they could fire you for that and, and, and anything like that. And most workers don't think that can happen to them until it does. I know, so <laughs> I know, sometimes, as a reporter, I get a phone call from someone out of the blue saying, you know, my boyfriend got fired yesterday at work because he came in two minutes late or because his boss was angry that, you know, about his attitude or that he wasn't smiling. And they'd say, isn't that illegal? I'd say, don't you understand the United States we have something called at-will employment, meaning that your employer could fire you for any reason or no reason except, you know, specifically illegal Whatever ones the civil like rights racial laws. discrimination. Right, exactly. yeah. Yeah. And, and, and people don't realize that, you know, their, you know, their jobs can be very precarious, very uncertain. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, to my mind, one of the big problems in America is that workers don't have enough power. They're scared to exercise their voice at work. Uh, I write about, you know, the Upper Big Branch uh, mining disaster where more than a dozen workers were killed. And the workers knew about the dangers in the mine, but they were so scared of speaking up that they didn't speak up about the dangerous gas that was uh, filling the mines and, and the mine exploded and all these workers died. And, 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 you know, worker voice is way too weak. Workers are way too scared to speak up. So some people argue, well, we should move from an at-will employment to just cause so that, you know, workers, you know, could only be fired for a legitimate reason. And a just cause system would certainly make workers more willing to speak up 
say when they see safety problems or when they're encountering sexual harassment on the job. Exactly. Well, when, and the other issue you mentioned, uh, raising the minimum wage, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable that we've gone this long in this country without a raise in the minimum wage. And as you know, the House, uh, in, in the House, we passed the Raise the Wage Act, which would raise the minimum wage in the United States to $15 an hour by 2025, gradually over the next five years or so. And we would end the practice of having sub-minimum wages for tipped workers who are disproportionately women and people of color, and they are taken advantage of. And that would put millions and millions of dollars into poor people's pockets, working people's pockets. And workers, I think your point is, I guess, have not had the power in, in our politics in, in Washington and state capitals to just get a decent shake in, in the United States in, in recent years. One, th one thing that always kills me is I, you know, I read the, you know, some editorial pages, some business lobbyists say, complain about big labor, that worker power and unions are supposedly so extraordinary pow extraordinarily powerful. And you know, I did some research for my book and I look at, well, who's really powerful? Who's really big? And, and I saw that in the 2015-16 uh, campaign cycle, business gave more than $3.4 billion in donations, which was more than 16, more than one, six times as much as unions, which gave $213 million. According to a respected nonpartisan group, the Center for Responsive Politics, each year in Washington, corporations spend just under $3 billion on lobbying, which is more than 60, more than 60 times as much as unions, which spend $48 million. I think that explains a lot of the problems we're seeing in Washington. So. You know, to me, it was weird that you know Congress rushed to enact a one trillion dollar corporate tax cut for business when you know corporations were already making record profits and Wall Street was already at record levels. Right? How so far can we go with this kind of income and wealth inequality? Yeah. I mean, how extreme yes. will it get before we go in a different direction? I mean, that's the question. Absolutely, and, and that and Congressman, that helps explain why. You know, too many folks in Congress, the Senate, for instance, is doing nothing to raise the minimum wage because they're listening to their corporate donors. Right. Well, I, know, I was, I was a. Well, I want to talk a lot about these policy ideas, but I just want to emphasize to to our viewers that I at least got so much out of this book from your stories, and I think it's a great part of the book. Really, the the bulk of the book is telling stories of workers today, but also throughout American history. And so I want to ask you, don't you think that a lot of the, the stories you tell from 100 years ago, say, uh, really have a lot of relevance to today? So why don't you uh, talk a little bit about the uprising of the 20,000, for example. Tell us a little bit about that story, because I thought that one had a lot of relevance to a lot of the struggles that workers go through today. And even a lot of the issues that people would think, huh, that's actually not just about work, but issues about immigrant rights and the rights of people of color in society, you know, minority groups. Sure, happy to. So, you know, I've read a lot of labor histories, and, that, and there's been a character who has fascinated me over the years. Her name is Clara Lemlich, and she was born in the Ukraine. Uh, she was Jewish, uh, you know, um, her father was very religious. She worked, uh, you know, writing. Uh, you know, a lot of people 
uh, kids had moved and, and relatives had moved to to New York. She would uh, write letters for them, you know, because she was she was very literate. Uh, she did some garment center work, but there, there were these horrible pogroms in the area, and her family moved to New York from Ukraine. And she was a very bright young lady. She was hoping to be a doctor someday, but when she arrived in New York, you know, you know, she only spoke Yiddish. She didn't have a high school education. So what did she do? She worked in a sweatshop, and she was appalled at the conditions. You know, she said, "I often used to work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. I go into work, you know." Uh, before the sun came up, I'd leave work, work after. And, and sun six went or down. seven days I a week, right? I six or seven days a week, yes, yes. And, and, and uh, some, of the may, you know, some of the bosses would sexually harass the women. You know, sometimes they'd have to pay. They'd be rushed you know, not to use the, be in the bathroom for more than a minute or two. They, they often had to pay for the needle and thread at work. Sometimes they had to pay five cents a week to use drinking water when they're just making $5 a week. And she thought, this is appalling. And she got, she became an activist. She said, I'm not going to take this. And, and, you know, this, you know, young woman in her, you know, in her late teens, early 20s, became one of the most prominent um, garment worker activists. And, and people got fed up and they started going on strike. And there were some long strikes at one or two uh, garment factories. And there was a decision that, you know, there's a huge meeting at Cooper Union saying, should we have a general strike of garment workers to try to put maximum pressure on, on, on the factories? And there was a big debate in Cinema Gompers, the founder of the American, the first president of the American Federation of Labor was presiding over the, the meeting and he was kind of temporizing, well, I don't know if we should have a strike. I don't know if women, are, women workers are really dedicated enough to their jobs. And Clara Lemlich, you know, just 23 years old, stood up and said, and, and, you know, I think it's time to call the general strike. I'm tired of, of being a poor working woman struggling day after day. And the place went bonkers, bananas. Everyone stood up and called for a general strike. And that began what was the largest strike to date by women in American history. Even and, to this and day. Was, and, and to this day. And they were calling not for a 40-hour work week. They were calling for a 52-hour work week. I, you know, one of the things that gets me is a lot of Young people seem to think that the 40-hour work week was handed down by God. You know, as I explained <laughs> in the book, no, it was won by struggle uh, by thousands and millions of workers and their unions. And in the uprising of the 20,000, you know, it was a strike that lasted two months in the dead of winter in New York. A lot of these women, mainly uh, Jewish and Italian immigrants, you know, their families really went hungry for many weeks. But you know, after two months, they won. They won the 50-hour work week down from 56 hours. They won the right no longer to pay for needle and thread. And, they, and at most of the factories, they won the right to join a union and have union recognition. One of the very few factories that refused to recognize a union was the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory. And two years later, um, there was this horrendous tragedy there where 146 workers died in the Triangle Fire. So, but here you have this story of a teenager and then a, a, a woman in her 20s. Many of the workers were teenagers or very young, overwhelmingly women, overwhelmingly immigrants. They didn't speak English. They spoke Italian. They spoke Yiddish. They were despised by the high society, um, even though some high society women ended up coming to their aid. But in general, and, you know, you don't have time to tell all the details, but they were beaten up. Some of them were beaten up. Oh, right? Yeah, so I mean, physically one, one by, by men, goons, by you know, sent in by their employers, and so my question to you is: today, when we have these 
kind of inspiring movements that we should, you know, stop mass incarceration, that black lives matter, that immigrants, you know, immigrant lives matter, that, 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 we, that, that the DACA kids are saying we demand our rights and, by the way, the rights of other undocumented people. Um, and, and the young people are out here in, in, in the movement about climate change. I mean, when I read your account, I thought how inspiring for young people and activists today who are fighting for rights in this country. But I don't think they, I don't think in their minds, they think I better look to the early 19th century labor movement for inspiration. That's, what do you think about this? I mean, you know, so one of my themes in the book is that, you know, solidarity is important, you know, people working collectively, acting collectively, protesting collectively to, to lift themselves up, to improve you know, their wages and also to improve the climate and to, you know, help fair treatment of, 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 of African Americans like Black Lives Matter. But I also stress that agency is very important. Individuals need to be willing to stick their necks out and stand up uh, and, and try to demand justice, like Clara Lemlich, uh, you know, in the uprising of 20,000. And what was crazy, you know, at one point, thugs beat her up and broke 11 of her ribs. And she, she was living with her How parents. How many ribs do you even, even have? Parents. <laughs> I know. And, and, <laughs> That's and a lot. And she didn't even want to tell her parents because she thought they wouldn't let her go out and speak on soapboxes and lead strikes. And then, you know, also you, there are incidents and, in, you know, literally, you know, in like old papers like the New York Tribune explained that, you know, reporters saw this, that the thugs, the goons would come and beat the bejesus out of these young women. And then the police would come and arrest these women and let the thugs go. The police were so one-sided back then, and it shows how the establishment, the police, the courts were so aligned against the workers, but even despite that, the workers were able to win the strike. And, and in the book, I write about some modern-day workers, you know, who use their agency to really, you know, fight for better lives. I write about a fast food worker in Kansas City named Terrence Wise. He held two full-time fast food jobs. And, and a little like Clara Lemlich, you know, he left for work at six in the morning. He'd come back at midnight. He had three daughters, and you know, he'd leave house and he'd leave home in the morning before his daughters woke up. He returned after a second job after they gone to sleep, and he complained. And his daughters complained that you work so hard trying to make ends meet. He doesn't see his daughters most of the week, and and uh, for a while they became homeless when when some of the hours in his jobs were cut off. And it was crazy that someone who's you know, busting his derriere, working two full-time jobs, you know, can hardly make ends meet. And he became an activist in the Five for Fifteen and one of the leaders in the Five for Fifteen. And and I was, a, you know, as I explained in the book, I was the very first journalist in the United States to write about the Five for Fifteen. And when it began seven years ago, and the workers were demanding fifteen dollars an hour, I said. That's super ambitious. That's super ambitious. That's pie in the sky, and here we are, seven years later. Uh, uh, New York, California, Illinois, Maryland, Connecticut, Massachusetts, District of Columbia have all enacted $15 minimum wage. So, it shows that when you know workers are willing to stand up, when individuals are willing to stick their neck out, they really can achieve big change. And and a lot of the lessons I think that today's activists, you know whether it's climate activists or Black Lives Matter act activists or, or Me Too women's activists, is, you know, they learn a lot from the labor movement of old. And I write about how the labor movement of old, whether in the uprising of the 20,000 
or the Flint sit-down strike in 1936-37 in your home state, Andy, Michigan. You know, what, you know, when workers really stand up and come together, they can achieve historical change. And we saw that recently, as I explained, in my chapter on the teacher strikes in, in, in West Virginia and Oklahoma and, and Arizona, and more recently in Los Angeles and Chicago. You know, the teachers were tired of wage freezes, are tired of being beaten down. They said, we're tired of austerity. We have to do something to not just to increase our pay, but to assure that the schools are getting the funding they need, that class size doesn't balloon, that we have enough money to buy, you know, modern textbooks. And, and you know, the teacher strikes have really sent a message to the nation about how worker power, how trade unions, labor unions can help build a fairer nation. Well, let's talk about strikes as a, as a mechanism because uh, they, they were very important in building the middle class in this country and they've fallen into disuse. Talk to us, you share inf both information and stories in the books about how many strikes there were in the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s like that and then how both because of law and weakness in, in, in labor, perhaps, they've fallen into nearly complete disuse. And then tell us what your thoughts are about today when we're starting to see uh, the teachers, but also hotel workers, uh, the auto workers at GM recently. Right now, my kid is on strike as a graduate employee at Harvard. I mean, he's a TA, and wow. they're on strike. So wow. tell us wow. about yeah. the, the sort of the... The sweep of the the, the the you know strikes their role in history and how you see it going forward. So in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, there were kind of far more strikes than there are today. In the 1970s, there were like 300 large strikes a a year, and, and in the past decade, they've really been only you know about 13 you know you know far 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 less, and you know workers have become. Uh, intimidated, and I think a lot of it happened in the 1980s. In the, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, there was fairly good cooperation between employers and unions. Uh, employers, you know, were very prosperous after World War II, as the nation's economy was growing, and they gave fairly generous contracts. And and um, you know, come the 1980s. Uh, uh, the United States really felt pressure from globalization, imports of German cars and Japanese cars, imports of steel from elsewhere, imports of, of clothing, imports of TVs and radios, and there was a horrible recession in the 1980s, and you know, those two things really put unions under pressure and made employers bolder about confronting unions and demanding concessions. But there's and then also Ronald Reagan won right, the presidency. Exactly. In, there you go. In, yeah, in 1980. Yeah, tell yes. that story. And and when and and so uh, shortly after he uh, became president in 1981, the air traffic controllers went on strike, demanding very large wage increases and a four-day work week. And they engaged in an illegal strike. And for Reagan, it was, as I explained, kind of a make my day moment. You know, he said, "I'm not going to put up with his illegal strike. I'm not going to." Even though he had been president of the Screen Actors Guild and led their very first strike, he got <laughs> very tough towards unions. I think he really tried to show. He's not going to let labor push him, push him around, and and he fired eleven thousand three hundred air traffic controllers for going on strike illegally, and and uh, you know I th and I explained in the book the union air traffic controllers union really mishandled the strike. They didn't work to get enough public support. They didn't work to get enough support from their fellow unions. So they were really clobbered, and that was a major setback for unions across the nation. That really 
discouraged, deterred, frightened unions from going on strike. And at the same time, you know, Reagan's you know, crackdown on the air traffic controllers really emboldened corporate America to get much tougher toward unions. So it's really starting in the 1980s, we saw this major decline in, in strikes. And also, we saw corporations getting much tougher whenever there are unionization efforts. And, and that made it much harder to unionize. And I think that's a big reason that the percentage of workers in unions is, is about half of what it was in the 1980s, because you know, corporations engage in so many sophisticated tactics to prevent workers from getting unions. They fire people who support unions. They often spy on workers who support unions. They threaten to close their plants, as I explain in detail, if, if uh, workers vote to form a union. So, you know, as, as I said, you know, the number of strikes each year really has fallen to its lowest level in, in more than half a century. But then last year, something happened. I turned in a manuscript of my book on February 19, 2018, and it was kind of a quiet time for unions. There were very few strikes. The fight for 15 was really the only major thing going on. And then three days later, as I explained in the book, there was this volcanic explosion in West Virginia where thousands, even tens of thousands of teachers wearing red shirts went on strike in West Virginia and crowded into Charleston. And I explained how these two teachers, uh, you know, uh, an English teacher named Jay O'Neill, a Spanish teacher named Emily Comer, they, them, you know, those two people really got the ball rolling for this huge strike, and they and were without kind of, the leadership you know, formally of the of the of the union, right? Yeah, well, yeah, like they, they thought, you know, in West Virginia, teachers' unions are not allowed to bargain collectively with their districts. They kind of had to beg the state legislature. So the laws against them, really. Give, laws yeah, very to, weak. To, to, yeah, to give them raises, and and it was a you know very conservative red state legislature that was you know, cutting corporate taxes, cutting taxes to the rich, and that really created, uh, you know, a freeze in, in the education budget statewide and a freeze on teacher salaries. And these teachers saw that, you know, the governor of West Virginia, as I explained in the book, uh, uh, who was the richest man in West Virginia, the only billionaire in West Virginia, he said, I'm going to give you a raise of just 1% a year for five years. And, and the teachers were really upset about that because they had the 48th worst pay levels of, of, of any state. And worse, you know, their health care premiums often went up, you know, three hundred, five hundred, seven hundred dollars a year. So that the governor was offering them a raise of just about four hundred dollars a year, while their health premiums would often go up more than that. And you know, Jay O'Neill and Emily Comer, you know, two teachers, they started a Facebook page, which started slowly, but once the governor said, We're just gonna give you this tiny raise and, 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 and you know, this, it, the, the Facebook page exploded, thousands and tens of thousands of teachers joined it, and all of a sudden we had this big movement. And, and you know, people were like uh, fed up. You know, it, it, was a, it was like, you know, we're fed up, we're not going to take it anymore. And, 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 uh, and it, it spread was, you know, across like the, the frog, whole country, like, like right? The frog, spread yeah, across like the, the whole frog country. Like the frog in the fish tank, yeah. You know, like they, the heat was turning up and turning up, and it was getting worse and worse, they couldn't afford you know, they were moving backwards economically because they weren't getting raises when the health care premiums are going up, and they saw these tax cuts for the rich, and they said, you know, you know, we call, you know, we, you know we're calling, you know, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. And they went on strike, and they won a raise, and they, they uh, won the ability to, so that health care premiums wouldn't continue going up so much, and they forced the governor, and they forced the state legislature to pay uh, more attention, you know, after years of starving the education budget. And, and then teachers followed suit in multiple other states yeah, where you, that would surprise 
uh, many of our viewers, yeah, where yeah, the yeah. where unions are supposed to be weak, and yeah, right. Oak, 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 Oklahoma, yeah, Oklahoma, you know, one of the yeah. reddest states in the union. A, 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 a social, a high school social studies teacher there was watching TV, and saw what the teachers were doing in West Virginia, and said, "We could do that here in Oklahoma." And there was a huge strike at Oklahoma. They won, they won double-digit raises. And Arizona, some teachers got on the phone with the teachers who led the uh, led the strike in West Virginia and learned some lessons there. And and you know, it was really an effort, you know, by the teachers. In the, in, and and this happened in Los Angeles later, and happened in Chicago. That this system is broken. The government is not spending enough on, on, on our schools. We're tired of austerity for our schools. We really, you know, you know, our kids are falling behind. Our class size is getting bigger. You know, we have obsolete textbooks. And the teachers really went on strike to, like, fight not just for raises for themselves but for a better school system. And, and they say we're fighting not just for ourselves. We're fighting for the community. And in the GM strike, you know, the recent GM strike, you know, there's one, you know, some very interesting aspects. The day the strike began, you know, the, the union's chief negotiator with GM said, this strike is not just for us, this strike is for all Americans. He explained that, you know, you're also concerned about factories moving overseas, so are we. We, the UAW, were very unhappy about this huge Lordstown factory in Ohio closing and thousands of workers losing their jobs, and GM said, well, we have to close the plant because demand for the car that's made there, the Chevy Cruze, is declining. So GM closed that plant, but hey, it kept open a plant in Mexico that makes the Chevy Cruze. And, and one of the purposes of the strike to, like, say, you know, we're not gonna, we don't want to tolerate this anymore. We we want to try to stop jobs moving overseas. And the UAW also said, you know, uh, American public, you're concerned about the future of jobs for your kids and your grandkids. So are we. And they said. General Motors, long one of the you know, biggest, most iconic companies, corporations in the United States, 7% of the workers at GM were, were temps, 7% of its factory workers. That's right. And they made just $15 an hour. And they said, we got to fix this. You know, these GM workers are making hardly more than, than many McDonald's workers. And that's so, not fair. Yeah, Steve, I, wanna, I can't tell you how many uh, times on, on, I mean, the strike lasted 40 days, including after, you know, they were voting on it until they finally went back to work. And I can't tell you how many of the different picket lines I was on where I would talk to the senior people, you know, the members who were been 10, 20, 30 years. And I said, well, what are you really out here for? And so many of them said, I'm out here for the temps. And I mean, these senior workers had not had a raise in a long time. They were, had a lot of their own concerns. But they just felt it was so unjust that they were working next to somebody, making half of what they were, and it, it was corrosive to the culture of the workplace, and they wanted to, to end the whole idea of two-tier wages and temp workers who really had very few rights. And they uh, really succeeded in this strike in improving that situation uh, tremendously. And so... it. You know, it really was a fight for the whole working class of the country, not just, you know, for themselves. And it was it was inspirational. And not one, you know, I have to tell you something. I don't think this got enough attention. Not one person crossed that picket line. 49,000 workers. Wow. We're, we're, just think about our society where people are so, people say, oh, our society is so divided, you know, in A, B, and C ways, right? political parties, race, age, people, everybody's just on their little smartphone not paying attention to each other. 
here were almost 50,000 workers who stuck together for over a month and one change. And I don't think we appreciate that kind of human solidarity in society anymore, but that's what it, what it takes to make change, I think. No, I, I think that's a great point. And you know, I, I think you know, a lot of workers are frustrated. They're tired of wage stagnation. They're tired of you know, at-will employment. They're tired of you know, at GM and many other companies. They're a two-tier wage system where they hire younger workers at much lower permanent wages who are working next to older workers who are making far more. And you know, I think a lot of people feel this system is rigged, and I think that's one reason a lot of workers voted for Donald Trump. They thought he'd be this Absolutely. magical guy who would un unrig the system. I and I argue in the book that you know that unfortunately Donald Trump has done many things against workers' interests. He's done nothing to raise the minimum wage. He's rolled back uh, increased over protect overtime protections for workers. You know, uh, health and safety protections, president, so on and yeah, so forth. Yeah, he wants to reduce health care protections. President Obama took an important step to require Wall Street firms to act in workers' best interest in handling their 401ks. Uh, that policy was, was scrapped the fiduciary by, rule, by the absolutely. Trump administration. Yes, yes. And, and I think just as workers, many workers turned to Donald Trump looking for a way to raise themselves to unrig the system, I think for the very same reason, a lot of workers are looking, looking to unions. And I think that's why uh, right now, and, and I think that's why the General Motors strikers had such support. You know, one of the interesting things is that, you know, uh, an annual poll by Gallup found that uh, public approval of unions is at its, its nearest highest level in 50 years. 64% of American workers uh, approve of unions, and the highest level is actually among young Americans, 67% of them. And, and there's a recent study by some professors at MIT that found that one, basically one in two non-union workers say they would vote to join a union tomorrow if they could, whereas just one in 16 private sector workers is in a union. So there's this crazy disconnect that, you know, 50% of workers want to join unions, but only, you know, 6% of private sector workers are in unions. And I argue, and I, I explain in chapter and verse, how corporations fight so hard to prevent workers from forming unions because, you know, corporations, you know, fear that unions are going to make corporations share more of their profits and more of their prosperity with their workers and, and, that, and that might reduce their profits. And, you know, for years, you know, the, the, the you know, overwhelming idea in, 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 American, in corporate America was profit maximization, profit maximization, profit maximization, and unions are saying that's wrong. Uh, there's too much income inequality. We labor unions are the most important, effective vehicle to to try to reduce income inequality. And I think that's a big reason why public approval for unions is increasing. And I say that even though you know I just saw the movie The Irishman yesterday. And right. and yes, you know corruption has been a problem. Yes, for too many years unions did discriminate against African Americans and 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 were you know did not encourage women workers enough. But I think. That has changed a lot. There's much less corruption in unions. There's still too much. Uh, and, and the legacy of discrimination against blacks and, and, and Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, that's way behind unions. Now, unions see that a key part of the future American workforce is women and workers of color. And unions are saying, we battle for everyone. We fight, we fight and for immigrant blue workers, whites and, and blue immigrant blacks workers. and immigrant workers yeah. and Latino workers and Asian American workers and women workers. And, and I explain in the book that Unions probably have done more than any other institution in society, except perhaps you know our wonderful military, to bring workers of different races and religions together. Yeah. 
Well, before I really am eager to spend leave enough time to talk about policy, but I just people who want to read this book are going to want to read it for the stories, not just the earlier ones, but the more recent ones. And I want to ask you to to pick out a few of those because, as you know, it was fun for me to read this because I you know lived some of them in my years at SEIU and at, at the AFL-CIO and f- so forth. So, um, for example. I mean, you could you could sort of take your pick, but you know, when I, when I was at the AFL-CIO, uh, we uh, uh, some unions collectively helped the workers at LAX, the airport in Los Angeles, organize there, and we used the community benefit agreement structure that was pioneered by Lane uh, there, and you you talk about that story. Um, I got to uh, march on the picket line at the frontier strike, the longest strike where nobody crossed the picket line in what, over six years, something like that, in Las Vegas. And you explain really, I think, in some uh, really effectively and in detail how the culinary union, the what's now called Unite Here union there, uh, has an incredible model, really, of empowering and organizing uh, workers, many immigrant workers who, you know, where a, a hotel, uh, you know, housekeeper has a middle middle class life. You know, we brought a lot of young people into the labor movement through Union Summer, uh, which I created and ran. And I think you f- pull threads together in various places about about the importance of young people organizing. And uh, you know, I mentioned my son. I mean, graduate employees uh, organizing at different universities has been you know, an area of growth for the labor movement. So talk about, you know, pick out one or two of these stories of the innovations that you have seen uh, workers creating through worker centers, through unions, that you think uh, could be promising models uh, for, for workers to gain more voice and power in the economy going forward. Okay, so let me try to tell two stories, and I try, won't, won't, I'll try not to take too much time. So... I try to write, you know, I, I devote a chapter to the Culinary Workers Union in Las Vegas, which yes. is the union representing hotel housekeepers, dishwashers, assistant cooks. And I write about them because in many ways they're a model union that, you know, has done a great job lifting, you know, who, who, people who are usually low-wage workers, lifting them into the middle class, building a powerful union that has done a ton in politics. And I profile a hotel housekeeper named Frances Garcia, an immigrant worker who works at the MGM Grand. And, uh, you know, she makes $19.51 an hour. And under the union contract, she gets 40 hours a week. Uh, that makes $780 a week and about $40,000 a year. And, and I visited her apartment. She has a nice three-bedroom apartment with her three kids. She's raised them on her own. Her husband... Uh, you know, and the tremendous health care. you got to mention that. Yeah, tremendous health care. You know, she doesn't wow. pay any premiums for her health care. And she, you know, doesn't need Medicaid. She doesn't need food stamps. She doesn't need welfare. And I described Francis Garcia as an example to show what a really good, effective union can do to lift people into the middle class. And in comparison, in contrast, the typical non-union hotel worker in the nation makes just eleven dollars an hour, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And they often don't work don't work forty-hour weeks. They often work, say, a thirty-hour week. So that's three hundred thirty dollars a week, maybe seventeen thousand dollars a year. You can't raise a family, you know, three kids on $17,000 a year. You can hardly raise yourself on $17,000 a year. So the culinary union is a great example of what unions can achieve. Also, uh, so in the 2016 election, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, you know, union strongholds have all, all flipped from blue to red. 
And I explain in my chapter on the Culinary Union about how a very powerful, effective union that does a great job communicating with its members, mobilizing them to get involved in elections, to make phone calls and knock on doors. That union, the Culinary Union, played a key role in flipping Nevada from red to blue. And I quote the president of the parent union, D. Taylor, saying, you know, uh, labor unions are strong in Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. If they do what we do, you know, communicate with our workers, educate them about, about the economy and what's going on in politics, you know, uh, unions in those states can do what we, you know, what we did in Nevada. Right. Uh, so, you know, and Frances Garcia is, you know, she, you know, you know she fled uh, Honduras, you know, because of the, this huge hurricane there. She moved to the United States, and she's, like, fighting very hard you know, for, you know, lifting other workers, for lifting herself, for raising her children. But and I think the culinary is a great, ex great example. So th it seems to me that this story has these incredible implications, both for policy and for the labor movement in s itself, because, you know, if we didn't have to subsidize workers, say at another hotel company at all around the country where workers are making poverty wages or at Walmart or many other sectors where the vast majority of workers are non-union and we the taxpayers are paying for food stamps or uh, temporary assistance for needy families or so many other forms, Medicaid, so many other forms of public assistance uh, if workers just, you know, were able to form their own unions, they could take care of themselves. And then there are the implications that you talk about in the book for the labor movement, where you think they need to devote more money to organizing. Well, here's a union that did that, where they need to empower their own workers to take care of themselves instead of picking up a phone and calling a union staff person. It sounds like this, this story that you tell in the book has implications really broadly and for, for the labor movement itself and for policy. Yes, a, a, a few responses. So there have been a, these elaborate studies done showing that, you know, a high percentage of Walmart workers and Amazon warehouse workers, you know, are on food stamps. And, and, you know, those studies, for instance, have pressured Amazon to adopt the $15 minimum wage at its warehouses. So, you know, uh, it is true that all these, you know, workers who work really hard, you know, still, unfortunately, uh, you know, need, need federal food, you know, food stamps and other assistance. Now, the Culinary Union, you know, I write about several aspects that it does a great job improving, increasing, you know, wages and benefits for its workers. It does a great job in politics. And, you know, unfortunately, many unions don't do a good enough job involving their members, mobilizing their members, communicating with their members. You know, one of the points I make in writing about the Culinary Union is it does, you know, an exemplary job. And I profile this housekeeper, Frances Garcia, not only does she work full-time, you know, cleaning rooms, not only does she raise three kids on her own, she also volunteers a lot for the union as a shop steward. She goes to bat for co-workers who get, you know, maybe punished for arriving five minutes late or have a hard time, you know, finishing cleaning their 14 rooms in the allotted eight hours. And, and you know, this is a union where people really fight for each other, where they have each other's backs. And, and uh, it's a model because, you know, you know this union really you know, uh, does a lot of organizing. It gets a lot of the members involved in organizing drives. While many unions have lost members over the past two, three, four decades, the Culinary Union has actually gone from having 18,000 members in the 1980s to 60,000 members. Now it's more than tripled in size. Wow. While overall, you know, union membership in the nation has declined by nearly one-third. So, you know, this is a model union that I think, you know, I recommend folks read my chapter on the Culinary Union. It shows 
what a unit can achieve when it does everything right. All right, I need to mention one other aspect of that story because I think I'm the only uh, member of Congress who used, used to run a state workforce system. And uh, you, in the book, talk about one innovation might be having states uh, uh, administer uh, unemployment insurance, but also possibly be involved in job training programs and helping workers a access it. Talk about how this union has gone far beyond just helping them access job training, but the employers and the union have created one of the most inspiring job training systems in America so that you can come in as, a, as somebody with no training and start uh, cleaning a hotel room and rise to become a maitre d' or a sommelier worth making $90,000 a year or something. Tell, I mean, talk about their training institute because that's, uh, isn't that a worthwhile part of the story? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, some unions do a great job training. You know, the building trades unions have wonderful apprenticeships. You know, not everyone's going to go to college. And, and you know, people see a great route is to like become a plumbing apprentice or carpenter apprentice or electrician apprentice. And people who don't go to college who you know pursue these apprenticeships, they can get jobs to pay sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year. The culinary union, working with the hotel casinos, has this wonderful training academy, so that someone who is a busser, you know, clearing tables and making you know twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a year. They can take courses to become waiters or bartenders uh, and really double their salary to you know fifty sixty thousand dollars a year and these courses are for free and then if they really want, they could take courses further courses to become sommeliers to become chefs and and and, and you know triple their salary to make maybe ninety thousand dollars a year and this is all free and this is a total win win you know the the hotel casinos in Las Vegas need a talented, loyal, knowledgeable workforce. And, and the workers are eager to climb up, you know, and and make more money and and, and work in, in more skilled uh, jobs. So you know, this training academy, this wonderful industry union uh, cooperative effort, trains you know several thousand workers a year to you know give them more skills and to enable them to raise their pay. And there are all these workers, you know, in Las Vegas who started you know as hotel housekeepers or as you know bussers, you know, making. You know, not much more than minimum wage, and now they're you know they're making you know fifty, sixty, seventy thousand, some making ninety thousand dollars a year as sommeliers. I attended some classes at this academy with like a world class sommelier teaching you know these people about wines. I attended a class with this amazing pastry chef teaching hotel housekeepers how to become pastry chefs, and it's it's really it's like and it's for free and like it's great for the industry, it's great for the workers, it's great for society when there are these cooperative efforts to uh, provide industry with the skilled workers they need and to lift workers who are eager to move up in the world. Well, so let's, let's talk more broadly about this because you mentioned about policy and how we can help more workers in this country access this kind of life. You mentioned uh, the building trades and they have incredible apprenticeships where you know, there's this thing that everybody should go to college, meaning four-year college. And really, there's no economist that has a model of our future economy where they can show that we need more than, I don't know, 50, 60 percent of the work, workforce to, to go to four-year college. And we are always going to need what you might call these middle-skilled jobs or jobs that really require more than high school but less than a four-year degree that are really a ticket to the middle class. 
or, and certainly could be if more industries were organized like the building trades are. So, you know, but I don't think most people know that if you sign on to be an iron worker or a labor or an operating engineer, an electrician, a plumber, all these, you know, bricklayer, what all the different trades, that you get education and work, you earn while you learn, you become a master at your craft, you're offered lifelong education, because just like a doctor or lawyers, you go back again and again, like the electricians go back to learn about installing solar panels and electric vehicle charging stations, for example. And your benefits are portable, because if you're a construction worker, say, you're gonna build one building for you know six weeks or, or, or six months, and then you're gonna go to another one, and each, employer's each employer contributes to your health care and your retirement. So the question is, how can we get this kind of a middle-class life for more Americans? Because I think people look at the low unemployment rate and they say, why isn't everybody happy? But you've told the story in your Fight for 15 chapter because all those people had a job. The darn thing is they had two and three jobs and they still right, didn't have right. a middle-class life. So let's kick off the policy discussion. How, what, what are your, you know, t your, your, your top picks for policy changes okay. you think we ought to make so that more American workers can have a real middle-class life, which is, I think, all we really want? So I was reported for the New York Times for 31 years. For five years, I was based in Paris as the nation, as, as the Times European economic correspondent. And you know, I wrote about, you know, companies and workers in, in Germany and Italy and France and Spain and, and, and the Netherlands and Sweden and England. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of the folks I spoke to in Europe would say they make fun of the United States. They say they, they have this term mick jobs, that you know, many jobs in the United States would pay minimum wage without benefits, without vacations. And they'd, they'd sneer at, at you know, the low level of jobs in the United States. They say the United States is a low road economy. You know, whereas, you know, I wrote once a story about McDonald's workers in, in Denmark who average $20 an hour and have great benefits and get, you know, lots of vacation a year, whereas um, McDonald's workers in the U.S. averaged $8 an hour and often didn't have health coverage and often didn't get vacation. So, you know, I think something was broken in the United States. I think that's one of the main points in the book is that, you know, too often we have a low road economy with low wages and no benefits and it makes it very hard for workers to make ends meet to support their families and makes it very hard for family uh, work balance. So we have to figure out ways to improve things for workers. So in the book, I, I, you know, I really look at various models and strategies to make things better for workers. And I think one way is I think our campaign finance system is very broken. As I said, corporations far, far, far outspend unions and, and worker groups. And that's why the minimum wage is stuck. That's why you know, there's this huge attack on, on, on health coverage for all. And I think you know, we have to fix our campaign finance system so it's not so dominated by the rich, so it's not so dominated by the Koch Brothers Network, so it's so not so dominated by corporations. And I think there's something really wrong when you know, someone could give $100 million and have a huge voice in the campaign and have much more say than a school teacher or a nurse or a steel worker. So I think right. that's something we need to do. So we're going to, I'm going to push you to do sort of rapid fire here. So we, you know, in the House, okay. we, pass, we passed H.R. 1, our, which would, for example, uh, have public financing for campaigns. If people gave up to $200, 
that it would be matched six to one. And some states, right. and, you know, cities have done that. So that's one. Let me let me ask you. You have a. I counted seventeen proposals. I think I thought it was terrific, and I'd say four Thanks. or five of them are um, covered by what we're working through in the House right now: the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, uh, the, or the Pro Act, which we have we have passed through the Education and Labor uh, Committee, which I'm the vice chair of, and you know it. Talk about uh, briefly uh, what happens when workers try to form a union, and you know some of the just if you had to name you know kind of quickly three or four things that need to change so that workers could actually form a union today. What would they need to be? I mean, what what do you see? So there? I think, as I said, you know we have this disconnect where basically one in two non-union workers say they'd like to join a union, but only one in sixteen are in a union. And and you know in the book I explain the main reason for that is corporations do such an effective, aggressive job beating back unions. I have this line in the book that's really been picked up saying, you know, the United States is the only, uh, you know, uh, of all the industrial nations, corporations in the United States fight harder to beat back, indeed, quash unions than, than corporations in any other country. And, and, you know, they fire workers, they uh, spy on workers, and one of the crazy things is that under federal law, corporations that break the law to keep out unions, they can't be fined. They face no punishments whatsoever. It often takes years to win back the jobs of workers who are fired for supporting a union. And I, I argue in the book that the, you know something's broken when corporations can flagrantly and repeatedly break the law to keep out a union and only have their wrist slapped. So I think we need much stricter penalties to discourage uh, companies from doing that. And I think another problem is that, you know, uh, you know, workers only bargain, you know, one workplace at a time. Whereas in Europe, there's like industry-wide bargaining, which gives workers much more clout when they when they bargain with an industry. I think we have to figure out a way as a society because corporations so dominate now and worker power is so weak. We have to figure out a way to give workers more power in bargaining. So wage uh, boards York, or yeah, sectoral bargaining or something like that? Sectoral bargaining. You know, right about here in New York City where I am, uh, you know, there are tens of thousands of Uber and Lyft drivers and they can't unionize because they're often considered independent contractors. But the New York City did a study finding that about 95% of Uber and Lyft drivers make less than the minimum wage. So you have all these drivers driving 60, 70 hours a week, sometimes falling asleep at the wheel, doing dangerous things. So the city enacted a law that creates a minimum pay, minimum compensation for Uber and Lyft drivers of $17.22 an hour. And, and you know, there a city is stepping in and saying something is really broken for tens of thousands of workers and we want to do what we think is fair for both the industry and for these drivers to help ensure that they can make a decent living yeah. and not have to work 70 hours a week and fall asleep well, at the wheel. Yeah, you know, what? I, one of the things I think that your book does such an effective job of doing is showing that there's the agency of the individual, there's the solidarity of group of workers coming together, often thousands or teachers across the state, whatever the examples are, and then there's an ineluctable role of policy. And we're not different from Europe because God ordained it or the invisible hand. It's pol countries, states, cities make policies, right, that, that cause these things. So, you know, to wrap up, 
what what is your you know do you, do you think there's hope for workers in America and and if so why because we just got about a minute left and I I want to let you sure. you know leave us on a on an up note because I feel hopeful right. myself and your book gave I, me uh, hope so why yeah I I think you know there you know I'm feeling much more hope than just a few years ago there's you know there's been this strikes so where workers are showing you know we're t we're fed up and we want better public approval of unions is way up. Uh, you know, even Donald Trump is, is calling for paid family leave, you know, something Republicans have opposed for years and years. And, and you know, and young workers are really standing up, you know, graduate student unions, uh, in my profession, journalism, nurses are unionizing, teachers are really feeling emboldened. So I think there's a sense that something is broken in the workplace and that collective action, unions, going on strike, working together. Even 20,000 Google workers went on strike to protest how the company was mishandling sexual harassment. So I think workers really see that there are benefits to, to collective action, to working together, to improve you know, their lives and their family lives and trying to create a fairer society and a fairer America. Well, that's great. You know, Steve Greenhouse, I just feel like your book really uh, lays out how we could have a more hopeful future if we enact policies that just can unleash all of this energy we see around the country so that workers can really come up with their own solutions to organizing and having a voice at work again. So thank you so much for your book, for your work, and thanks for this conversation. I really appreciate it. This was great. Uh, thanks for doing this with me. Great talking with you. All right. Take care.